Amen. Well, if you weren't here last week, <clears throat> or you have a short memory span and need something of a recap, uh, we looked at the story of Abraham last week. And in a nutshell, what we saw was that Abraham and Sarah in their old age uh, were promised by God to have a son. And we alluded to this moment in the story. Abraham and Sarah believe God. That's very clear in the story. Abraham has faith, but his faith is mingled with doubt. His faith is mingled with this kind of uncertainty about how God might actually fulfill his promise. And Genesis 16 is a kind of little insight into Abraham and Sarah's attempt to do things their own way. They're very old. They're not able to bear children of their own. And so Sarah hatches a grand plan. Sarah and Hagar are really the two main actors in this first act of our story. And I just want us to look at really one thing. Sarah completely objectifies Hagar in the verse six verses of this chapter. And then we'll just very quickly see how this results in Hagar being completely alone. You can imagine how Sarah feels. God has promised that she would bear Abraham a son, and yet she probably looks in the uh, BC equivalent of a mirror and thinks, how on earth could this be me? I'm in my 70s. I've always been infertile. How could it be me? We looked at this last week, this, this doubt, this feeling of how could God possibly choose me? In her doubt and confusion, she decides, because I'm afraid, because I'm confused, I'm going to take it out on this slave woman. Have a look at verse 2. She says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave, that's to Abraham. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Let's go back to school for a couple of minutes. And uh, Phil Ford's going to like this. Let's do some close reading on this passage. The most basic English sentence structure goes subject, verb, object. Someone acts, they do the verb, and then the object is acted upon. Hagar, at no point in these verses, whether in conversation with Sarah and Abraham or in their actions, is given the agency of a subject. Sarah takes her. Sarah gives her to Abraham. Abraham sleeps with her. Subject, verb, object. She is always acted upon. She is never given any agency in this story. The only time that she's a subject in this text is the uh, verse. Very small phrase. She conceived. She conceived. And in no real sense is she actually the one doing anything there. She's the object of these verses. The 20th century uh, Jewish philosopher Martin Buber was most famous for his book, I and Thou. And he argues in it that we really have two options as human beings. We can treat one another as thous, and we'll come back to what that means, or as its. As thous, or as being an it. And in what he calls I and it relationships, the other person is a means to an end. They're an instrument, not a full human being, just something that we can use to get what we want. And Sarah in these verses views Hagar as an it. Not as a human being in any meaningful sense, but as a blunt object, an instrument to achieve her own desires. 
She should keep centering her own self. Maybe I can start a family through her. My slave woman. She's the object in the grammar of our text. And Sarah never uses her name. She calls her my slave. Hagar to Sarah is a proxy womb. She's a kind of functional appendage to her old and failing body. It's all she is. I just want to be clear because one too many commentators on this passage suggest that Hagar is somehow complicit in the sin of Abraham and Sarai. Hagar, whether by force or by social coercion, is raped in these passages. We've got to be clear on this. This text does not portray Hagar as complicit. She is the passive victim of sexual assault. She's not named, she's acted upon, and she never at any point is given any role in having agency. I want us to see this because what, what we have is a story where the heroes up until now, the people that we think these are, these are our people, Abraham and Sarai, they're the main characters of the story, and the heroes up until now are unable to see the grisly reality of their sexual assault. I want us to tread lightly, these are sensitive topics, but we need to name them because we risk becoming like Abraham, who's unable to see what's going on, unable to name the reality of these things and kind of brushes it aside in passivity. We need to name what we see. For those of us who don't have daily contact with these realities, we need to become shocked at these things. And we read a story like this and we think, well, the past was somehow so much more sexually broken than our day. But the World Health Organization found that 30% of women worldwide have been sexually or physically, uh, have, have been a victim of physical or sexual intimate violence. 30%. In Glasgow, the latest stats suggest that sexual crime is at a 50-year high. It went up 73% between 2018 and 2021. This is not Abraham's problem. This is a problem of our day. Sex trafficking, forced surrogacy, the sale of children, it's a huge issue globally. Diane Langberg is a psychologist. She's a kind of Christian trauma counselor. She writes that trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 21st century. These are not old realities. In the 21st century West, we've somehow come full circle to being content to come modify and disregard the female body again. Talk of birthing parents and people who menstruate. Sexual revolution that has completely disregarded the well-being of women, a culture of porn and objectification. We could say so much more, but we don't have time. But we live in an age that is happy to view the female body, the thou, made in God's image as an it. Function prioritized over the image of God. Hagar's story is not isolated. It is the story of so many in our day. She is objectified. She is raped. She's reduced to an it, and now she finds herself alone. In verse 4, if you have a look with me, when she finds out she's pregnant, the text says she despised her mistress. She finds out she's pregnant, she gets rightfully angry. Now, she's not strutting her stuff 
She's not kind of showing off to Sarai, saying, look at me, I managed to get pregnant, and you didn't. She is faced with the blunt reality of her lot in life. No wonder she starts to despise Sarah. But Sarah can't handle the reminder of what she's done. She can't handle seeing uh, Hagar's pain in front of her. And if you're plugged into the story of the Bible so far, you'll notice how serpent-like Sarah sounds. Look at verse 5. In the garden, Eve blamed God. She said, the serpent that you put here told me. So what Sarah says, Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Sarah becomes increasingly serpent-like as she tries to fulfill God's promise on her own instead of trusting in him. She blames Abraham. She prioritizes her own pain over Hagar's. And Abraham is no better. He reminds me of Adam in the garden, standing by the tree, watching Eve eat, cowardly and passive. Abraham lets Sarah harm Hagar. He says, the Lord will judge between us. Passive. He watches as his wife abuses the woman that's pregnant with his child and she flees into the desert. I just want you to try and get into the mind of Hagar. Verse 7. So she finds herself near a spring in the desert. She's looking for water. She's thirsty. She's hungry. She's pregnant. The Middle Eastern sun is beating down on her head. The memories of her abuse won't stop running through her mind. Her life has unraveled with one decision. She's literally sitting in the desert getting ready to die with her unborn child. Her story reminds me of uh, an account I read in the news this week of a woman who was paid to be a surrogate. And at 24 weeks, she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. And she was told by the doctors, if you're induced to labor now, there's a chance this baby will survive. But the surrogate parents said, no, we don't want to have anything to do with a child with the health complications that will come. Abort the child. We don't want the child. And she went through with her decision. She was induced to labor. And as she sat with her child, who was dying, his parents never showed up, never said goodbye. They left, they left her alone with her grief. They left her alone with a dying baby boy. She was quoted in this article as saying, I felt like a rented uterus. That was this year in the UK. Hagar must have felt just the same, a rented uterus. Useful until she's not discarded into the desert when her body didn't do what they wanted anymore. Hagar in Sarah's eyes is an object. And now she is alone in the desert, with no food, with no way to survive. Have a look with me again. We'll read from verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. 
This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called, called Beer Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son and Abram named his son Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. In the TV series, The Chosen, which is a kind of dramatizing of the life of Jesus and his disciples, the very first episode follows this woman called Lilith, I think is how you pronounce it. And the whole episode, you don't know who she is. She's demon-possessed. She cuts herself. She's caught in addiction and prostitution. And we keep seeing flashbacks to her early life. Eventually, we find out this Lilith is who we know as Mary Magdalene. And in her childhood, she is taught by her dad the words of Isaiah 43, 1, which says, But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And the episode follows her in her pain and addiction and possession. And we kind of get wrapped up into her emotional life. And at the very end of the episode, she stumbles upon Jesus for the first time. And nothing much happens. He looks at her. And he doesn't call her Lilith. He looks her in the eyes and he says, Mary. This woman who had lived for years under a name that represented her sin and shame was looked in the eyes by Jesus and called Mary. It's a scene that made me weep. She kind of falls into his arms and Jesus says to her, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine and this scene beginning in verse 7 is so similar. Verse 8, Hagar sits in the desert waiting to die and the angel of the Lord approaches her. Look at his first words. Hagar. If it's a lump in my throat as I was preparing this week. This nameless slave, dehumanized, abused and discarded and God comes to her and says, Hagar. In the eyes of God, this object has suddenly become a subject. God makes a promise to her that reverses the arrogance of Sarah. Verse 10, I will increase your descendants. Verse 11, you shall name him Ishmael. See that God doesn't view Sarah, uh, Hagar as a surrogate. She's not an object. She's not a rented womb. She's not a slave. She is his beloved Hagar. But who is this angel of the Lord? Well, in one sense, he seems to be separate from Yahweh. He seems to be separate from God. The text doesn't say the Lord came to Hagar. It says the angel of the Lord. And yet in verse 13, Hagar declares that she has met directly with God. Have I seen the one who sees me? You know where I'm going. Who could this be? Who could both be God himself and yet somehow not the Father? Well, this is Jesus. This is Jesus who meets with Hagar in the desert. The same Jesus that met with a woman at the well, that discarded, afraid woman, meets Hagar at a spring. The pre-incarnate Christ names and restores dignity to Hagar. If we were to return to Martin Buber's philosophy of the it's and the those, 
we see in Jesus someone who always operated from the I and thou. Never from I and it. He saw the dignity and image of God even in his opponents. His heart was and still is drawn to the outcast, to the sinner, to the wanderer, to the wilderness. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus finds Hagar in the wilderness because that is where he finds himself all the time. That is where Jesus is. He wanders around the wilderness looking for discarded sinners. He's on the margins with the Hagars of this world. Here's how Jesus himself described his ministry. He quoted the prophet Isaiah. He said, a bruised reed I will not break and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. Hagar in this moment is a bruised reed. She's right on the cusp of breaking. I wonder if you have ever felt like that. Like if I am mishandled in this moment, it's over for me. I am one word away from snapping. Let me promise you something. Jesus will never mishandle you in your pain. He's the most tender, gentle Savior. He doesn't come in heavy food. Here's Dane Ortland. He says, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. If you come to Jesus in your Hagar-like pain, you will only find the loving embrace of God. Hagar is subjectified not objectified. She's restored from an it to a thou, but she is also seen. She seems to put a lot of weight on this. Verse 13, she just starts to rejoice. She says, you are the God who sees me. In Hebrew, that's the name Elroy. And then she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. God doesn't just restore her dignity, but he sees into her in the most penetrating way possible. Throughout the Bible, the sight of God isn't a kind of passive sense of what his eyes are looking at. It is something that demonstrates his compassion and his care. When in Exodus, God declares to the Israelites, I have seen your affliction. That isn't a passive statement. It's a statement of intent. I've seen your affliction and I'm on my way to help. He may as well have said these words to Hagar. I have seen your affliction. The life of intimacy with God that Hagar gets a taste of here. The same life of intimacy with God that we are invited into as Christians is a life of beholding and being beheld. Martin Buber again, he summarizes his philosophy like this. He says, all of true life is encounter. All of true life is encounter. God is not content to be known as an idea. His desire is that we see him as he sees us. It's my favorite definition of contemplative prayer, looking at God as he is looking at us in love. It's the kind of life of back and forth beholding that we are called to as Christians. All of true life 
is encounter. All of true spiritual life, anyway, is encounter. So you come to see God for the first time, like Hagar does. It's like she opens her eyes to see God for the first time. What does she find? She finds that God has already been lovingly gazing at her all along, willing her to see him in return. When we behold God beholding us in love, we move beyond seeing even God as an it. How often do you think of God as just an option among many to fulfill your desires? I'll try therapy. I'll try get running. I'll try a better morning routine. And I'll, I'll try faith. I spoke to someone the other week who said, I think I should start going to church because I really need routine in my life. I thought, as long as it gets you through the door. But that is not what God is. He's not one option among many. We view God often as a product to add to our spiritual wardrobes. But to approach God as Elroy, the God who sees us, is to transcend spiritual consumerism. To move past shopping for spiritual things into a face-to-face, spirit-to-spirit friendship with God. It is nothing less than to enter into the eternal family life of the Trinity itself. And yet Hagar's joy isn't actively kind of centered on her seeing God. Her joy is actively centered on God seeing her. The theologian and priest Henry Nouwen wrote a book on the story of the prodigal son. And in it, he writes this. He says, for most of my life, I've struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard, he says, to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. He's striving, he's striving. Now he says, I wonder whether I ever realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God? But how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to know God? But how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God? But how am I to let myself be loved? By God. God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. That was Nouwen's experience. It was Hagar's experience. And that can become our experience as we see that God is the God who is pursuing us, not waiting for us to come to the place where he lives. He didn't find Hagar by accident in the desert. He saw her there and he pursued her. And in a strange way, Hagar becomes again, not the subject of this story, but the object. The object of God's pursuing love. And that's good news because God doesn't want to harm her. God doesn't want to use her for his own purposes. He has no intention of discarding her, but beholding her in his loving embrace. Could be true of us too. Everything in your body might have dropped when Hannah was reading Hagar's story. Maybe you related to her experience. 
Maybe you are alone like she was. Maybe you're suffering from clinical depression. Maybe you're without family and lost those you love. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you've been abused. Listen, God will never, never treat you like Abraham and Sarai treated Hagar. He will never leverage your life as a means to his ends. He will never take the smoldering wick of your heart and snuff it out. The seeing God of Hagar is the same God who sees us and calls us by name this morning. Hagar was discarded. She was objectified, assaulted, mocked, left to deal with the fallout. She was alone in the desert, pregnant. She was nameless and afraid. But the good news of our story this morning is that women like Hagar are precisely the kind of people that God loves to bump into. Whatever desert you find yourself in this morning, whoever has discarded you, whether it's anywhere near the severity of Hagar's story or you've just had a terrible week at work, it is God's delight to look you in the eyes, to call you by name, and to restore you to himself. And there are some of us who need this morning to allow him to do that. Like Henry Nowen says, not to try and find him this morning, but to allow him to find us in love. To allow him to enter into the reality of our wilderness wandering. And so in just a minute, I would love to just pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us. The Bible says the Spirit's job is to shed the love of God abroad into our hearts. He ministers the things of Jesus to us. Jesus said it is better by far for me to go and the Spirit to come. And so when we invite the Spirit, we open ourselves up not to a kind of second best, but to an encounter like Hagar had. To a genuine encounter with the God who sees us. 